This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I state are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. So it is June. And oftentimes when June comes around, folks start to think towards summer. They start to think towards all of these different things. But there's also Juneteenth. And we have a very special guest with us today who's going to join with us, who wrote this beautiful play. And she's going to talk more about that forward. But we also have with us one of my mentors, one of my first teachers of storytelling and so much more, uh, Miss Rose McGee. Welcome, Rose. Well, thank you. Now you're making me sound really, really, really <laughs> whatever it is. I won't say oh, but... You know, quite seasoned, yes. <laughs> and you know what? I'm embracing that. I'm embracing that. That's yes. what's up. Reverend. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to have you here. And and we're going to get to talking about, about the play, about the history of Juneteenth, the history of Juneteenth in Minnesota in particular. Um, and then and then just generally as we come into this season, uh, it's so important, especially now. And you were on KMOJ at the day of this recording earlier talking a little bit about um, you know, the where we've come as a nation around the Juneteenth holiday. But I, I want to start us off by reading the official order from General Gordon Granger. Juneteenth, June 19th, is designated um, as, as, uh, uh, as kind of a freedom or independence day for African Americans with the history through slavery in the United States, um, in large part because on June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger, this is a little excerpt from the play, gallantly rides into Texas, right, is forced to abandon his current mission and go to Texas to give an order um, because people were moving from other states that were in rebellion against uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the order to remove their slaves. In 1865, on June 19th, had to read this proclamation that basically told folks in Texas that you had to emancipate your slaves under penalty of death. Now, it's widely known for anybody who's actually read the history that General Gordon Granger did not want to go to Texas, did not want to give this order. But I want to give this full order because oftentimes folks will just read the first part and not go into the rest of it, which is apropos to some of our conversation today. But it's General Order Number 3 and in Galveston, Texas on, 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 on um, June 19th, 1865. He says... The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedmen, and this is where he turns to talking to the black folks, the freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. That is the order that is the founding, uh, that is the impetus for what would become the Juneteenth holiday in the country um, that folks are just now beginning to awaken to outside of black communities. So, I saw your face, Ms. McGee, as I was reading the the other part of that order. So what's coming up for you as we start talking about and embark on Juneteenth? Well, you know, it goes back to even 
those words that um, Lincoln had in the Emancipation Proclamation. There's this thing that people feel that they must control every aspect of how Black people participate Hmm. and function in this society. Uh, And Lincoln's verbiage was they will be given gradual, gradual emancipation, which meant, no, they're not, we're not going to free them right away. We're going to take our time about it because, you know, behind the scenes was, we just want everybody to, to make sure that they have time to do what they need to do, not so much the black folks, but let's make sure that um, all the slave owners have time to get it together so that, you know, when this uh, transformation, t- this transition takes place, that um, you'll, be in, you'll, be, you'll be in better shape. So, you know, out of that grew that verbiage that we just heard from Gordon Granger, which is basically saying, okay, don't y'all be going nowhere anytime (laughs) soon. Um, And that's really what it's about. So when we look at the, oh, uh, just no value that's placed on us as human beings in terms of being ourselves, value is placed on human beings as being the property of others. You know, what's coming up for me, in addition to what Rose just said, is just setting people up for failure. You know, when you talk about no idleness, idleness, what does that mean? There's That is such a subjective term. And it clearly conveys that we're going to control you, right? Mm-hmm. And we define what idleness means. And in my mind... You know, the mindset I can imagine that that went into this, and I'm speculating because I wasn't there 100 plus years ago, but it's we dictate how much you're going to work when you stop working and when you're going to be eligible for going to sleep, basically, right? Or going to eat because idleness then otherwise would not make sense in this, right? The expectation is to drive someone to work to exhaustion uh, the way it had been when um, owners enslaved people, our black brothers and sisters, and put them in this position. And, and so that to me is something that's it's really coming up and bothering me, but not surprising because that is the spirit of what the mindset was to have control of or over black bodies. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I appreciate you saying that because these are the kinds of things that made Black people feel ultimately uh, of needing to assimilate. Mm. Because so many things they didn't have access to doing. You couldn't just sit on the porch and have a tall glass of lemonade. That's idleness, right? Mm. So uh, the idea of you doing something like that and taking the time to have a birthday party and to celebrate something, that's idleness, right? So when Black people began to do these things, they wanted to do them the way that they'd learned it from old Masa and Mrs. Uh, in the house, right? Uh, this is what we used to do. We used to make these big cakes and everybody would party. And so that's what that's what we've imitated. And it, even on down to education, right? We wanted to learn the way they learn and do and things and dress the way they dress and all of that. So that was okay for them because that made you more like you were civilized. It's like, you know, the whole thing with with 
uh, going to Africa and trying to train the people in Africa and 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 civilize the folks on, on the continent of Africa because after all they were savages. So now here we've caught these savages, we brought them here, we've had them enslaved, and now we're about to let them go. Oh no! So there was fear there too. So some of that control had to do with fear and not wanting to uh, release this out there without people fully understanding um, what they could and couldn't do. And to your point, too, on the issue of fear, this is also the idleness part of it and the subjectivity of it means that law enforcement and employers slash former slave owners can now have you arrested because you are, quote unquote, idle. Right. So let's be clear that their vigilance and wanting to restrict a black person's mobility and functioning is still there, even though this has been shared as, okay, you folks are now free from enslavement. But are you really when you're still subjected to this? And of course, this opens the door to all the black codes that we're familiar with, vagrancy, all that stuff that historically we're aware of. This, to me, is part of all of that mindset and that thinking that you by no means will be free-free, even though the word is there in the Emancipation Proclamation, even though we're saying it, it, we don't really mean it because we're instituting all of these systemic barriers that will ensure that we will continue to have you under our thumb with regard to slave, uh, former slave owners, but also law enforcement. Absolutely. I mean, those sorts of things still exist today, right? The idleness, the the whole concept of um, black guys hanging out, the cops are going to be called right away, right? They're loitering or they're being lazy because why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they working? That kind of stuff. It still exists today. It continues to exist today. And it, it starts from that, right? You know, um, one of the things that I think is 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 is, is 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 interesting to me one that idleness piece right because none of this is unconnected so we know that as you talked about um uh earlier today um in, in a in a radio show that was I was I was listen, as I was listening the complications around Abraham Lincoln and Don this is going to go right up your alley uh professor Eubanks because um many folks will have been taught growing up about Abraham Lincoln as this great emancipator and I even had to, to stand up and play Abraham Lincoln in church plays and school plays and things growing up. And then I get a fuller story. I get a fuller story about Abraham Lincoln trying to bring black clergy together to re-emancipate black folks to Africa to avoid conflicts in the war. Um, you know, you, you can read more about that in that book, Team of Rivals, that talks a little bit about that. But we also have to contend with the fact that Abraham Lincoln, as Don has pointed out to us many a times over, is the largest Indian killer of all of our presidents. And so the great emancipator has a whole lot of blood on his hands at the same time. In fact, you had an interesting point of reference to even Minnesota in Mankato, as you were talking about Abraham Lincoln recently in one of the play rehearsals. Yeah, we did. And I'm sure Don can talk about it more, um, you know, uh, clearer with greater clarity than I can. But certainly the same... Um, night or whatever time frame that he was signing and pinning things, um, getting ready for that Emancipation Proclamation thing to sign that, he was also signing off for the 38 to be killed in Mankato. So that is very painful and very much um, 
uh, tells you a lot about the the person uh, who was and and the thing about Lincoln, like most presidents, he's operating from what he's being told to do. He's operating from his constituents, who he's got to keep satisfied. And if people haven't tracked that over time, and what presidents tend to do when they're in office is because of who they're to, you know, give their uh, <laughs> who they're to pay back, right? So that's that's it. A lot of it, and um, we're seeing that played out now a lot too, particularly um, in the last administration, where we are still seeing it. Everybody has their own own um, platform, if you will, and that's why they support someone because they want to make sure that their platform is brought to the forefront. That's how politics go. And so now that you're in office, I want to get my thing in, and you're going to have to let me get my thing in. So this had been a thing that um, somebody obviously wanted to get in, and I'll turn that over to Don to talk about. But yeah, those two things were signed right around the same time. Well, I mean, Rose, you covered it. You know, both you and Anthony have covered that very well. It, it's, I, I think the only thing that I would add to that is, is that when I, re, when I think about coming up through school, through elementary school, junior high school, and high school, that the way Lincoln was portrayed and the way he was taught um, gave me, you know, left the impression with me that, you know, we're taught that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Now, they don't go in depth behind that. So later, when we do additional reading and we dig into that a little bit deeper, and keep in mind that while we're in school, they never mention um, the hanging of 38 Sioux as a result of them standing up and fighting for their homeland and their rights because they're being starved to death by the settlers who, who relocated here, which later would become Minnesota. So for standing up and fighting for their rights, they were forcibly removed from Minnesota. They originally were going to hang 300, over 300. And mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln's lawyers actually whittled that down because so many of those cases, I mean, they supposedly held these these court hearings, right, <laughs> where mm -hmm. where Big they air quotes air quotes, right, and and so um, so you know when he signed that they hung thirty eight Sioux in in Mankato and then removed the rest of Dakota from from Minnesota. And the other thing behind that is while they were doing that, they also took the opportunity to remote uh, remove the Ho Chunk. The Ho Chunk had mm. were located. Mm outside of Mankato, and and so while we know they removed the Dakota, we don't hear that they took that same opportunity to remove the Ho-Chunk from the state of Minnesota at the same time. But I say all that because we, I was left with the impression that, that um, you know, George Washington is the father of this country which never made sense. Well, it, I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. He was the first president. But what didn't hold true for me was that he held slaves. But Lincoln freed the slaves. So it would give me a child of, you know, black indigenous background the impression that, oh, my God, Lincoln is this great guy. Well, when you really look into it, you find that, you know, <laughs> he 
He didn't do this out of a moral obligation against slavery. He did it for economic for economic reasons. And it wasn't it wasn't because he had this moral aptitude or he had this, you know, all of a sudden the you know God's hand touched his head and he came to a census. That had nothing to do with it. Yeah, if if it was up to him, you know, he wouldn't have freed us, but it was an economic thing. That's why he was also working so hard on sending us back to Africa, because he didn't know what to do with us after he freed us. So for the so for the general to make that statement in Florida or in Texas makes sense. I mean, it, it's no different because now that you freed these our ancestors, what are you gonna do with them, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. So, yeah, so he, you know, and and so most people in Minnesota weren't aware of that fact, that at the same time he's emancipating one part of my ancestry, he's killing the other. So, and that was still happening. Most people still don't know that he did that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So we're freeing, we're freeing one half of, you know, my dad's side while we're still killing my mother's and, and, and my mother's side. And so these two things are to me incongruent, right? Mm -hmm. How, 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 how can this country incongruently do these things simultaneously and the and unfortunately history shows us that this country is very good at doing those type of things consistently mm-hmm. to communities of color from the formation of our country mm-hmm. right where we the people right who are we the people mm-hmm. well when you read the the fine print it's white male landowners exactly. right it's not Women. It's I like not how you put that, people Lewis. of color. It's Read sure the fine print. <laughs> <laughs> it's sure as heck not indigenous folks, you know, who are being killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, we discovered America. No, you did not discover America. Mm-hmm. The land is indigenous. It existed before you came in and began to destroy it and usurp it of its minerals and all the riches and the people, right? I mean, this this may seem a, a, a bit uh, too much for some of our listeners, but I mean, it's been said many times over, but with people other than myself is we we started the this country, if you will, based on a series of lies and misrepresentations. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is really necessary for us to look ourselves in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. That's part of truth and reconciliation for us to begin to heal as a nation. But that's way too much for some folks. And, you know, and that there's a lot of fragility involved with some folks who just can't wrap their minds around it. But facts are facts. You know, the saying is you can have your own version of the mm-hmm. story, but you can't have your own version of the facts. And that's very true. The, the play, for example, um, has two scenes, and they can be used interchangeably, um, or if someone has time to do them both, they can. But one of those scenes is Lincoln in his study, really wrestling with himself about signing this thing and, and also just putting the verbiage together. And and so that's when we bring out some of the things that... Um, uh, we heard Don allude to around economics and saving the union and making sure because other countries were, you know, wanting to part ways 
with this country because of some aspect of slavery, even though, you know, some of them had it too, but not to the extent that was being done here as it was. And then you got to remember the jealousy and the envy that some were having, uh, this whole North and South thing. You've got this free labor going on down here. You've got this cotton that's happening down there and tobacco and that stuff. And look how wealthy that part of the country is getting. And we're not having that so so, so much up here. So there was all of this, this, this tugging, you know, of, of war that goes back and forth with people when, when they are envious of stuff uh, that somebody else has that they don't have. So we really, uh, the only thing I can say at this point for us is to make sure that we are sensitive to what it is that we embrace and celebrate. Because most likely anything that you're celebrating in this country has to do with the sacrifice of something and somebody that um, is not benefiting too much from it <laughs> anymore. So that's, that's the thing, and, and probably this world as well. But I just know how, how hard it is um, uh, to talk about Lincoln in 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 a in this grandiose way, when I mean, and and we're thankful that he's you know delivered us from slavery, so to speak, in the sense that we know it by law, which is why law is so important. It is so important to make sure that legal things are done right. Lose, make sure that <laughs> um, you know it, somebody's got to do it because if these laws are not um, you know reconstructed and if they're not fixed in a way that is in fact going to be something beneficial to everyone then it's just a bunch of stuff that stays in place for we the people you know we're we're part of the reason of having you talk about this is because there's a play that's happening on June 17th um at Breck there's a line in the play um, and I get to know this line because I grew up in this play. Um, but there's a line that you write in there that uh, where Fredericks Douglas comes out and says there can be nothing greater than to cherish the and honor the memory <laughs> of a great public man long after he's gone on to the silent continent of eternity, right? But then pivots right away and says, but <laughs> in no uncertain terms, we must say that President Abraham Lincoln was not our man nor our motto. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. You know, um, what I love about your work, not just with the with the play that we're going to be, I want I want to talk about as well, but also your work with the humanity centers is putting folks into um, into conversation with all of the story. It's not just a matter of 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 just saying we're going to omit all this other history because even Don, to your earlier point, you can definitely find writings of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln in their later years coming around to the moral side of things after the fact, at the end of their story. And most of it was in conversation with Black leaders. So George Washington had Richard Allen, who was pushing him on this moral issue of slavery that he would eventually come around to when it was too late for him to do anything about it. And unfortunately, Abraham Lincoln is the same way. He had Frederick Douglass pushing him uh, to, to contend with this. And then you will see some, some, some moral acquiescence in his writings later on, just towards the end of his life. But it wasn't by choice, and it wasn't at a time when you could actually do something about it in a large way and take that moral assuasion and actually work for it. It was by necessity. By the, <laughs> right, right, right. Wrong by choice, right by necessity, the Frederick Douglass line, right? Anthony, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So how is that 
how would those examples and, and, and just, you know, hang with me on this, but how would those examples be any different than what we're going through now and what we've been going through ever since first contact in terms of what we have to do to convince European Americans that what they're doing is morally corrupt and and maybe morally corrupt is too too you know too harsh of a of a term but what i hear you saying is is th- those individuals were doing the exact same thing that we continue to do to this day nothing's changed right i i think i mean you just said it and i think that's something important to contend with when we put the whole story together we realize that, you know, because a person could walk away from that going, well, they eventually arrived at the right place in history. Great. What did that say and do for all the folks, right? It, it, there's a line in your play that says at some point, you know, you know, even though we got this truth to be told about Lincoln, at least, you know, he, he did do something. We'll give that acknowledgement at some point. But it does it, in the context of the whole story, you can easily see how folks who are on the negative end of that history and this policy ain't got a whole lot of great things to say about folks like about about Lincoln and the whole uh, Andrew Jackson the whole and there are folks in my family my own family who would fight tooth and nail who have been at the head of justice issues themselves that balk at even the mention that Lincoln was not this grandiose figure who was a great emancipator like we have that I bring up Lincoln at the family reunion and you immediately all the kids are going to listen all the fight battle lines start to get drawn and they happen right along that uh, uh, um, age lines, depending on who was active in what. Miss Julian Jackson, who was one of the co-founders of Twin Cities Juneteenth, made the comment that, you know, the, the uh, miseducation that we get is hard to let it go because even today you will still see Lincoln's picture of Lincoln hanging in certain homes. You'll see a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus hanging in certain homes. And it's just the way people have learned, and they are comfortable with that, and you can't tell me anything different. I know one of the things that shocked me greatly was uh, when, and you were with me, I think, when we went to Ghana, and we went into one of the buildings. uh, It was a, a big commerce building or something. And hanging in the building was a picture of Christ, blonde, blue-eyed. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, why in the world is a blonde, blue-eyed Christ hanging in, 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 the, in the walls of Africa? And it has to do with uh, the influence of white Christianity that came in. You know, the whole colonization thing, we bring that out a little bit in the play, too, as Professor Mankato, who is this um, um, African studies teacher, is explaining to these young people in in the restaurant that uh, no um, Africa was held under under colonization. Many countries in Africa were for for many years, and that is such a tough thing for people to believe because they think, oh no, Africa's got it. Africa was free. Africa, no, it's what's you know, Africa is a beautiful continent, and which is why. People have gone over and taken advantage of it. I mean, look at South Africa. South Africa was under siege and, and in captivity for so many years. And um, others as well, the British had taken in under siege. And you've got this happening across this continent because of the wealth, because of the wealth, all of those natural resources that were there for them to just rape 
away. And, uh, oh, by the way, let's just start taking the people too. Right. I mean, if you think about it, when you think about this dissonance that we are raised with, you know, the miseducation, as you said, Rose, where we are indoctrinated with this version of the history and we hold on to that. Like anything else, we have some childhood memories, you know, people who were in plays together when you're a kid and celebrating uh, Abe Lincoln. But the both truths can be had at one time is what I what I'd like to make sure people are understanding. Right. Is that, yes, we can still understand his importance in history while at the same time hold him accountable for his actions. Right. We all mm-hmm. are in um, a position in life that we make our decisions. And as a result of the decisions we make, the choices we make, there are consequences. Uh, so part of that is, you know, keeping it real and making sure that people understand that his motive for signing the Emancipation Proclamation was not one that was based on values. It was economically driven. And then when we talk Mm -hmm. about Africa, you know, um, white Europeans went into the continent to extract its, its minerals and riches, as you said, Rose, under the false guide of Christianity. And I say false because if, if it was purely just Christianity, you would leave it at that. You wouldn't begin um, extracting all of this wealth from its people and not only extracting, but then building these elaborate institutions that show and reek of wealth while the commoners, if you will, remain impoverished and without any access to basic goods, right? And so again, it's it's that dissonance of, well, your values are love, God, embrace your, your neighbor and all that stuff, but then your actions are not congruent with that when you're exploiting people and exploiting exploiting the land. And keep and keeping people divided. Yes. And that's the thing that, that, that we have to pay attention to as well. They had a system in place to keep people divided. You had the colors, the blacks and the whites. And you were not to, uh, I mean, if you were black, you were definitely at the bottom. If you were colored, you were somewhere a little bit above, but, you know, you were certainly nowhere near white. And I can remember Dr. Robert Jones, who um, UROC is now named after. He was a university um high-level person here, University of Minnesota. But Dr. Robert Jones, way back, um, was over the um, agriculture aspect of the University of Minnesota. And annually, he and a national team would travel to South Africa. And this was before apartheid was lifted. You know, people were still fighting to get apartheid lifted. But because he was coming in, as this diplomat from the United States of America, he was given honorary white citizenship. It was interesting to listen to him talk about it because Dr. Jones is a very dark-skinned man. And he said it was very, very uncomfortable for him each time that he went into South Africa. And in order for him to navigate around and to be you know, treated like he was all right because he was a part of this you know, team, he had to have honorary white citizenship. Mm. So this whole thing of people setting us up in ways that keep us divided 
is something that we need to be mindful of. It's something that happens even now. We see one cultural group, and I'm only going to talk about Minnesota. I'm only going to talk about right here in Twin Cities for now. One cultural group fighting another cultural group, another one against another one. And this stuff is by design, and we don't even know it. How do we help our young people know that you're being set up to not like that particular group of people. You're being set up not to like those who just got here, um, refugees or and, and people who uh, may have come here as immigrants, whatever the situation is, and not to mention the people who were already here in the first place. Hmm. I mean, anytime I, I have conversations with, with many of my friends who are indigenous, it's like, yeah, we just get totally eliminated. We're not counted in this. We're not considered in that. We're not considered in this. And yet uh, we see it too as African-Americans, if we're not African-born in some cases, depending on what the situation is, we're not regarded in certain ways. And then if you are African-born and you come here, you've already been pre-trained to understand that, oh no, it's those African-Americans, you can't trust those. It's just all of this (laughs) division that goes on and it it continues. So this play, um, it's it's there, it's, it's free. And we want people to to come, to come and celebrate Juneteenth with us because, oh, and that's a whole nother thing. We got time to talk about how it is we got to Juneteenth, yes, why yes, everybody yes. in yeah. the world so knows about yes. it. That's the full circle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking, so my husband's place of work sent out this survey about, you know, which holidays would you, do you think should be paid holidays, blah, blah, blah. And Juneteenth was one of those. And I was like, I think everybody's probably going to say, yes, that should be a holiday. We get paid for it because they everybody just wants a paid day off, right? Like, who wouldn't? But do they even know why that would be a paid day off or should be a paid day off or what the holiday is? We've done this on Counter-Stars before where we've explained the history of, of Juneteenth and we talked about that. But I think a lot of stuff that's coming up is like, why now, right? Why are we having this conversation now? Why are these events happening now? Why is Juneteenth not being considered a holiday? You know, why is it a thing now when it obviously happened hundreds of years ago? And now we're just celebrating it. I didn't learn about Juneteenth in school. I learned about Juneteenth um, from a Black community leader, mentor, uh, my mentor, Daniel Bergen. So I learned about it outside of school in a program I happened to be a part of for youth of color. So this is something we're not learning in school. And now it's becoming something that's going to become a paid holiday for a lot of people. So explain to us how that came about, how we're celebrating it now. Remember 2020? (laughs) 2020, not the show. But the year 2020, we had, what, a terrible thing that happened with COVID. So there we were. But then that summer, we had a person that was running for re-election to run this country. And decided that they were going to have a rally, a major rally, in Texas on the 19th of June. And thank goodness, people went ballistic. And so now you got folk wondering, why is everybody so upset? What's the big deal? But that was intentional. That was totally intentional. Somebody knew. And so by the time, you know, media does their thing on it and everybody's now, oh, Juneteenth. What was, oh, goodness gracious. And it just became nightly news. (laughs) It was, everybody's all over the place about Juneteenth. And is this rally going to take place or not? So the rally did get 
paused, but it went right on the day after, I believe, and in the same place. And But after that, people just had a whole nother sh- shot of, oh, awareness. Didn't know that. How come I never knew this? So now everybody is out here with Juneteenth stuff. And uh, let me just say, this play was written, obviously, close to 30 years ago. And we've been doing it. And the Twin Cities Juneteenth Committee, they've been observing Juneteenth for so many years. And so have other places. But I have to say, as old as I am, I grew up in a Black community. I went to Black church, Black elementary school, Black high school, Black college. Never heard of Juneteenth until I graduated from college and moved to Denver, Colorado. And now I have Black friends, and here they are celebrating this thing and the lines in the play. And I'm calling it June 10th. What the world is June 10th? I never heard of June 10th before. But these were Black people who had migrated from Texas to Colorado, and they brought with them the tradition of celebrating Juneteenth. And many of them did not commemorate the 4th of July. They commemorated Juneteenth. And that's how I learned about Juneteenth. <laughs> and of course, I learned about Juneteenth from you and the play. The the um, uh, community leaders brought me as a kid and said, we need you in this play. I didn't, they didn't say, we'd like you or would you like to be? They just told me, go here, get in this play, because <laughs> that's how we do in community, right? So so I, I get sent I get sent in, in here, and then I learn about Juneteenth, and then I get to sit at the feet of Elder Mahmoud El-Khati. Um, you know, Don, you got to sit at the feet of Elder Mahmoud at McAllister when you were there with, along with J-Dub and all those folks. James James Williams, the playwright, was my was my second director. No, no, it was my first director in the play. And then... Um, Mayor Melvin Carter was my second co-director with your daughter Ro, uh, Roz um, uh, in in the play, and and it opened up this door that got me all the way back to Gordon Granger's order. That whole idleness thing. There are news articles that talk about how how calm and collected the celebrations were, and that folks could actually hold themselves with some decorum. And there was a surprise in news articles right around the first jubilee celebrations. Um, and then I read this uh, the Chicago Defender, which talks about how isn't it great that folks celebrated as cover, while many other folks got out, they dipped, they left, and so you start to see these celebrations pop over in certain elements be um, conti- uh, be uh, shared amongst different celebrations. The color red, which had which you know was a symbolization symbolism for a whole lot of different things. A large part of the original red was just that that was some of the early decorations that were like that, but they became the brand the symbol symbol of the blood that was shed. Um, to be a symbol of of you know red cakes and 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 and, and red drinks and stuff like that, folks began to to do family reunions around Juneteenth. So there are many African Americans who have no reason why the family reunions happened along this week in June. Well, part of it's because there's a whole history of having family reunions there because every gathering after that point was a family reunion for all these separated families and trying to piece things back together. Um, and so you have these different traditions in the Twin Cities. It didn't start, you know, it, we used to have the large festival at Theo Worth Park, but Don, and you corrected me. No, before that. B- b- um, that it started someplace else before that. Yeah, Oak Park. Oak Park. Yeah, we bring, we bring that out in the play in the end. Yeah. It's part of the epilogue. Oak Park. Um, in, was, in North in Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, right yes. down from where I used to go to school at Grant Elementary. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I mentioned to Anthony that how I ended up there, I don't even remember. But I was at Oak Park 
for, I think, one of the first Juneteenth celebrations. And that's when I first learned about what Juneteenth was about. Because I heard others in the community, the black community, talking about Juneteenth. And I had no idea what that meant. You know what I mean? And, and so I went to one of the first celebrations they had at Oak Park. And before it moved out to Theater Worth. And I don't even remember, I think I was in my 20s. So, you know, that would have to be back in the 70s, late 70s or, or early 80s. But it was sometime around that time frame that um, I was fortunate enough to go to one of those very first celebrations. And mm-hmm. um, But as you said, it was it was something totally unbeknownst to us. And I think, Rose, the fact that, you know, you brought up uh, about that campaign um, that was canceled and then happened the day after. But we also need to keep in mind that we were riding that wave of social justice consciousness that was sweeping the United States as a result of the death of George Floyd. So mm-hmm. when you when you have that wave flowing through this country and then and then uh that person made that conscious decision to hold mm-hmm. that I mean I remember very clearly because we talked about that in counter stories and um you know he made that decision but I think you know but now besides pe- besides now people being able to vote on whether it should be a paid holiday we're seeing we're seeing stuff show up with Juneteenth stuff <laughs> in Walmart and I mean so yeah. so these businesses are starting to capitalize yeah. on on this so it, it's being uh, Americanized dare I say that more on that next week <laughs> <laughs> so as we wrap up here because I know that Anthony and Rose have to go rehearse for said play that we've been talking about right after this what are your suggestions to our listeners who might not be people of color on how they should celebrate Juneteenth well first of all they should come to the play on the 17th of June either 10 a.m. or 7 p.m. and again both performances are free Breck School in Golden Valley is where they will be we suggest that you register so we can get you know have an idea of the count and you can go, do that by going to the sweet potato comfort pie um, website under the events page. Um, in celebration of the whole thing, uh, too, on Saturday, Sweet Potato Comfort Pie will have its second annual Sweet Potato Pie Bake Off. So you want to make those sweet potato pies and get them over to the Arts Us office on Saturday between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Bring those, I have to tell you, talk about being different, uh, the pie that won last year by Miss Tonda Caesarway Jackson Nissen was a purple vegan pie, and it was off the chain. Uh, yeah, who would have thought? You should have seen the judges. They're sitting there, and the judge that had it first says, "Oh my goodness." This is incredible. Y'all got to come taste this. <laughs> and so everybody goes over, they taste it, and it, it was delicious. And um, so. And I think I should take this opportunity. There is a small group 
in Roseville, where I live, where that kind of started um, after um, after efforts here um, surrounding Philandro Castile's death, and this group has has put on some Juneteenth celebrations in Central Park in Roseville, and this year. Um, they're putting on, I think, their third or fourth annual Juneteenth celebration, and not, and this time they have they actually have some black artists that will be coming in and performing, and they have some black entrepreneurs and other black businesses that will be there and black vendors that will be there. You know, now, now I definitely wanted to come check out them sweet potato pies, but that. That purple vegan one kind of set me back a little bit. I'm going to have to <laughs> work my way well, through that. We'll get you there, Don. We'll get you there. I'll work with you. Don, if I could just say this, um, I'm really glad, despite the commercialism that's going into it, I am glad that people are seeing and starting to recognize. Um, one of the gentlemen who is also very involved with um, Juneteenth nationally is Mr. Lee Henry Jordan. And he was telling me that just yesterday, he was up in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, speaking about Juneteenth. They wanted to bring it to the forefront there in their community. So it's happening all over. And I just want to squeeze this in real quick because um, Ms. Jackson mentioned it today. Sometimes we forget about who who the pioneers were. Mm -hmm. And she referenced um, Michael Cheney as being a person who had gone someplace and they were celebrating Juneteenth and he brought it back and said, we've got to do this right here in Minnesota, of all places, Minnesota. We weren't even doing it in Tennessee, but he's one of those early, early pioneers as well. I want to add that certainly there are celebrations to be had in community and for folks who are unable to attend those uh, you're not off the hook. <laughs> there are other ways for you to celebrate. Uh, first and foremost would be to celebrate by supporting financially Black-owned businesses where you live, whether it's in the Twin Cities or Minnesota or our listeners across the country. Uh, all you have to do is support e uh, Google uh, supporting Black businesses, uh, in Minnesota in particular, mnblackbusiness.com. It has a Minnesota Black-owned business directory on their website. Uh, MSPMag.com also has had um, some listings. The point being is that put your money where your mouth is and support some Black businesses. Uh, we know that, in particular, smaller businesses um, owned in community support uh, two-thirds of the job growth. So it, it economically has... Um, a longer tail to this in terms of impact. Uh, and then I would say, start reading some black authors that you've not read before. You know, I mean, James Baldwin immediately comes to mind, right? Uh, introduce new mindsets uh, that you have not yet been exploring in the past and begin to learn on a deeper level uh, from our talented folks and look at history from a different set of eyes and a different lens than what we've been indoctrinated with in school. So those would be my ideas. Well, I, of course, we always get to this point of counter stories where we could go on forever and ever, but we've got to put a pin in someplace. Um, but I want to add to that author list. Pick up 
uh, two books uh, by Rose McGee, who is here talking with us right now. One, Kumbaya, the Juneteenth story, which is a, a play that helps to tell the story in a unique way and in a really cool way. Um, um, that's an artifact for 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 here and to just carry with you. Another one, um, pick up um, uh, uh, her book around circle stories, story circle, um, stories. story circle stories, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is again is 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 carrying on that tradition of using story for healing, um, which is part of what Juneteenth is about: is reconnecting and telling those sacred stories. You know, I'll close us out by a line from your play: "Stepped, Stepped on, on a pin in a pin bent, and that's the way the story went." This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, uh, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions I've shared are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Banner with Triple Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And our guest... Rose McGee. I'm the author of Kumbaya, the Juneteenth Story, and founder of Sweet Potato Comfort Pie, a catalyst for caring and building community. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>